So yes, when I read my Bible, I will run into words in my Bible. And those words come up again and again and again. And I will not actually think about those words or what they mean. And, and then I discover, after a long time of doing this, there, there are words that get repeated, and I come up against them, and I realize, you know, 10, 20 uh, years later, after, you know, sitting with my Bible, that I haven't actually, like, thought about what that word meant. So are there any fans of the Princess Bride in this room, right? Okay, so, so we have a few. I can uh, share with you maybe a, a thing that you can relate to. So I feel a bit like Wallace Shawn when he is being corrected by Anigo Montoya, right? Because Wallace Shawn has this word that he uses over and over and over again in the movie that is inconceivable, right? You can't imagine that happening, right? It's inconceivable, right? And, and uh, he uses it at the weirdest times. And then finally, Anigo Montoya comes up and he uh, looks at Wallace Shawn and he says, you know what? You keep using that word. I do not think that means what you think it means, right? Like that, that idea that you come up against, like this word you use over and over and over again, you encounter over and over and over again, and you can't figure out what it means. One of those words in the Bible is the word glory. Now, we just sang a song about being bound for glory, right? And we have used the word glory to mean the place that we are going, like at the end of time when God redeems our bodies and takes us into new creation, right? This is like a thing that we're very excited about. But that word, that's not all the word glory means. It has so many other meanings, right? Uh, sometimes, like in the Old Testament, it's used to refer to a physical cloud of smoke. It, it's used to refer to an abstract concept. Sometimes... It's talked about as if glory is something that can grow and at the same time, something that never changes. Okay, so that's, that's hard. Uh, sometimes glory is depicted with light. The word glory in the Bible, it literally means weight, something that is very heavy. Uh, it can become an action so that you could, um, you could glorify God, right? And somehow in glorifying God, you would be doing things that would add to his weight. Uh, sometimes the word glory is used in place of holiness. And oftentimes the word glory is used in connection with God's presence. And, and it is the subject of many poems and songs in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so what you discover, the more that you talk about this word glory, is it is like this massive word with all of these different meanings. And, and so when I have kind of like this vague idea of what this word means, I can tend to skip over it and not actually deal with it. But what's really interesting is that when the people in the Bible use the word glory, they seem to know exactly what they're talking about. Like, I, when I read the word, I'm like, okay, that has so many different possible meanings. Like, there's, it's just a really big concept. But when people in the Bible use the word, they know exactly what they're saying. So this is a little confounding. This seems like a really important word. And uh, this is something that I don't even have a concept for. And somehow they know exactly what they're saying when they use it. So today's story... The, the, the way that we're going to kind of wrap up God uh, addressing his people after they sinned with the golden calf, it uses this word and it uses, it uses it to launch us into an understanding of God that is completely unexpected as you read the story and the way that it progresses. 
So I spent some time thinking about this word and how it gets used. And what I want to do is I kind of want to, because it's so big, and because we can tend to kind of skip over it because it's so conceptual and utterly hard to understand, I want to give us a working definition of the word that we can actually move forward with this morning. So this is the definition of glory that we're going to use. Glory is the real substance of God's pure and perfect character. Glory is the real substance of God's pure and perfect character. So sometimes, actually oftentimes in scripture, it's something very physical, right? We treat it oftentimes like this ethereal concept, but it's very physical. It's weight. It's this cloud of smoke that people are afraid to walk into. It's bright and like almost like an oppressive light. And somehow in that physicality is contained God's character. So like when you look at my face, you, you can't perceive my character. Like you don't, you don't know everything there is to know about me when you look at my face. And this is why this is a really hard concept for us to relate to. Because somehow when you look at God's glory, when you perceive God's glory, you are able to, in the moment that you look at it, understand what is contained within it. God's character. Somehow these two things come together. The concept of who God is combined with what you perceive physically in the moment. Right, so the conclusion is then that glory, it's not just an abstract concept, but it is the real substance of God's pure and perfect character. So now you might be wondering, well, why should I even care about God's glory? Like, why should that be something significant to me? Well, I want to tell you something. God's glory and your purpose are intrinsically connected. God's glory and your purpose are intrinsically connected. So a quick aside, a pattern that you will observe in the way that I preach. Um, I Almost in every sermon that I preach, I will kind of lay out uh, some concepts, and those concepts are kind of in order. I will start with an idea of creation of God's intention, of the way that God made something, the way he wanted it to be. And then I'll move on to the next concept of fall. Like somehow human beings have separated ourselves from God's intention. We've become what God does not want us to become. And then I'll tell a story about redemption, how we can begin to recover God's intention when we meet Jesus Jesus starts to bring things back into right order. And then even sometimes after that, I will tell a story of restoration. A day when Jesus is coming, not just to kind of work us into what we're supposed to be, but he is coming to make things as they were supposed to be. He is coming to set all things right. Right, so... If you listen carefully, in all of my sermons, you'll kind of hear me lay out that pattern. There's what God intended, there's what we became, there's what Jesus did to start making us right, and there's the promise that one day it will be made right. right? So, so you'll hear that. So let's talk about our purpose. Glory, the connection between glory and our purpose. Ultimate human purpose is this. You were created to add to and delight in the glory of God. You were created to add to and delight in the glory of God. This is the purpose of your creation. 
So there's a problem, right? So we start with creation, now we move to the problem, the fall. The problem is that we openly participate in the breaking down of creation. We openly kind of, uh, God has these pure intentions, right? And we openly chose to disregard his intentions and do things our own way. And you know what? We continue to choose that. And we continue to go our own way and neglect God's way. The Bible calls this sin, and sin has consequences, right? So God has an intention. He wants us to be connected to his glory, to add to and delight in it. But sin has consequences. Number one, that God's pure and perfect character can no longer be connected to us. Right, So if we were created to be connected, to find our delight and to add to God's pure and perfect character, there's a problem because we can't meet that purpose. There's now a separation between human beings and God's glory. And that's demonstrated in Genesis chapter 3 when God casts Adam and Eve out of the garden. He says, I can't have part with you anymore because you've introduced rebellion into creation. So in my mind... We have a pretty massive problem if the purpose that a thing was created for can no longer fulfill that purpose, right? So this is like you get a vacuum cleaner, but you live outside and sleep in the dirt. Like, can you imagine having a vacuum cleaner and living outside and sleeping in the dirt? Like, what good is that vacuum cleaner? What can it actually do for you, right? That's the same thing. It's a thing that can't possibly fulfill its purpose. So we've been created for something. But because of our decisions to ignore God, to stay ambivalent to him, or to flat out rebel against him, there is separation between us and the purpose for which we were created. So that separation goes two directions. That separation goes from us to God, right? Because we've chosen this way, there is something, there, there, there becomes something inside of us that is repulsed at the thought of the glory of God. At the thought of God's pure and perfect character, there is something inside of us that is repulsed by that. So we judge God. We desire to correct God. We make God subject to our standards. But then there's another direction. There's God to us. Right? God's glory is pure and perfect. And in it, there is no room for corruption. Right? So if we were connected with it, we would spoil it. And at the same time, it would spoil us. So the two things can't coexist. So there is a problem. And the problem is this. Without God's help, we remain separated from purpose. Without God's help, we remain separated from purpose. And the good news is, God loves to help us. God loves to give help. Okay, so some context here. Uh, last week, we, and the, the last three weeks, we've been talking about this story of how the Israelites have been given God's law, how God saved them out of Egypt, he gave them good things, but then the Israelites chose to build and worship another God instead of God himself. 
And so we've now kind of been reading the process of how the Israelites have had to reconcile with God over this. And last week we saw Moses kind of pleading with God, saying, God, go with us. If you don't go with us, we are ruined. We need you to walk with us. And so, so what's interesting is that God says, hey, God, go with me. And God just kind of immediately responds to that request and says, okay, sure, Moses, I'll go with you. And so Moses goes, well, if you're going to give me that, I'll ask something else. Hey, God, go not just with me, go with us. And you know what? God says, okay, Moses, I'll go with all of you. Right? So there's this like beautiful picture of Moses expressing his desire to God, and God is like ready to answer that call. And so this week, Moses goes a step further. He asks another question. Exodus 33, 18, this brings us to where we are this morning. Moses said, please, show me your glory. See, Moses has been walking with God for a long time now, and and as he's been walking with God, he's starting to understand something about his own purpose. And at the same time, something about who God is. He's actually like starting to grasp who God is. And so God is not just some national God of Israel. God, this God who has called Moses out and called his people out, this is the creator of everything. And so so the longer Moses walks with him, the more he watches him work, the more he relates to him face to face as a friend relates to a friend the more time he spends in God's presence, you know what happens? The more his heart is wooed by God. He's compelled by who God is. And all of this compelling, it starts to tug at him. So Moses, Moses is starting to discover, gosh, I was created for something more than just toiling for myself. So Moses wants a deeper connection to his purpose. And so, so as we've been reading the story, my expectation, like Moses asks and God gives. Moses asks and God responds. My expectation is that when Moses asks this question, God is going to jump in and fully give him what he's asking for. Every request he's asked up until now, God has answered fully. So let's see how God responds. Exodus 33, 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So so remember glory, our definition of glory. What would have been in Moses' mind even as he asked for God to show him his glory? Glory is the real substance of God's pure and perfect character, God essentially tells Moses, okay, Moses, I can show you a small piece and I can proclaim things about myself and I can even act in certain ways. Here's what I can do for you. I can kind of show you the results of my glory, the effect of my glory, but, verse 20, but he said, You cannot see my face. Here we're to understand face and glory to be synonymous with each other. You cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. So 
forgive me for being a little crass here, but God essentially says, Moses, if I actually gave you what you were asking for, it would be like an old Christmas tree hit a flame and then burned up. Interesting. Like Moses is able to relate to God, like a friend relates to a friend. But there is something so pure and so perfect about who God is. And there's still something so corrupted about Moses, even though at this point in Scripture, we might be led to think he is like the most righteous person that has ever walked. That there still remains this kind of crucial degree of separation between Moses and God. Like, and God doesn't want Moses to die. But he does want to respond to Moses. He sees that Moses is coming alive to his purpose. And he knows that uh, if he does this for Moses, it's going to validate Moses' ministry to the people. This is going to help Moses to delight more deeply in relating to his God. But, but something about this, there still has to be separation. So verses 21 through 23. Verse 21 says, The Lord said, Behold, There's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And and while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. So Moses, I'm going to be walking towards you and I'm going to walk by you, but you won't be able to see me. But then after I pass by, Moses, I'm going to take away my hand in verse 23. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So, so he says, Moses, I'm going to show you something, but you need to know there still needs to be separation. Like you cannot bear the full weight of the real substance of my perfect and pure character. So I will give you something, but I will not give you everything. And this is like kind of anticlimactic. Like I have to be real honest. <laughs> The first five books of the Bible, I mean, this is, this, these first five books, so uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these five books are meant to be read as a single unit, these five books together. And so, so think all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, it's building up a story until this point. This story started with humans and God together in the garden. And then at the very beginning of the story, humans do something to create separation between them and God. And so they can't get fully back together. And even now, God's great deliverer, Moses, God looks at him and says, we still can't be together. We still, there still has to be separation. God says we actually can't get back to the point that was in the garden. And so without God's help, we continue to remain separated from our purpose, from God's glory, from connection to him. And that's, like, that, that's where the story goes. Now it's going to move into chapter 34. And, and, and as it moves into chapter 34, it becomes really, really important that we pay attention. So I love the Bible. I love the way it works with a story. Because uh, here in Exodus 34... God kind of takes seemingly desperate pieces, disparate pieces, things that are separated from each other, things that don't seem to make sense. And in Exodus 34, he takes everything and brings it into alignment. 
right? There are things that were not previously understood about God up to this point that here in Exodus 34, he reveals about himself. And this becomes really, really important. So remember that word that I used earlier. I said this was maybe a little anticlimactic. Actually, I want you to know that this event in Exodus 34, when God actually passes in front of Moses, this is anything but anticlimactic. Right? It doesn't match up with our expectations, so we might be inclined to think that, but it is not anticlimactic. So a little bit of a reminder. Uh, up to this point, God gave some laws to Israel. So uh, he did this in a way to kind of say, hey, Israel, you're my people. Uh, and so I'm going to give you some directions about what you are to do. Those directions were written on stone tablets. And uh, he w- they were given to Israel. And they were to understand, like, this is how you relate to your God. Those laws are a part of a covenant. And uh, just so you know what covenants are in the ancient Near East, they're, they're uh, a, a big ruler, a person who's in charge of many things, kind of relating to a lesser person and saying, I'll make you a part of my kingdom, but here's our contract. Here's what you have to abide by, right? So, so God is kind of using an established system to relate to the Israelites, and he's saying, here we go. I'm the big ruler, and you are the, you are the small person, and I'm going to give you a way that you can relate to me. Here is our contract written on stone tablets given to you. Moses goes up to the mountain for 40 days, and immediately the Israelites break the covenant. And so Moses comes down, and he is angry, and he takes the stone tablets in his hand and throws them against the mountain, and they shatter, symbolizing that all of God's people have broken the covenant. So the thing that they did that broke the covenant, interestingly, it was written in the covenant that all should die. Right, like if you commit the thing that they committed, the punishment is death. And we know that some die, but not all died. Right, so, so instead of killing everyone, God is actually going to do something different and utterly unheard of. Like no ruler in the ancient Near East does what God is about to do. Right, this thing that he does I want you to understand, it is connected to the real substance of his pure and perfect character. His next action that he takes is directly connected to his character. So Exodus 34, 1. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. So God's saying, Moses, the covenant was broken. So now let me show you what I'm made of. We're going to write this covenant again. No king did this. No uh, ruler would do this. Like think of what those kings would stand to lose. Right? But God is instead, now he's going to co and he's going to reestablish a covenant with the people. So we typically think of it like Exodus 20 is the covenant, is that first covenant. Actually, Exodus 34, like they spoiled that first covenant. Exodus 34, God has to make a new covenant. They've been in it for a few days and God makes a new covenant with them. And this is so unusual. Instead of calling them to account 
for the ways that they have gone beyond the bounds of the covenant, what he does is he rewrites the covenant. He takes it upon himself to make a new covenant. The stipulations are the same, but what he does is he's giving them a chance to start with clean slate. So now we're coming to the moment where God is going to show up for Moses, right? He's making something new with them, and he's going to show up for Moses. So Exodus 34, 4, and 5. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended into the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So this is the moment that Moses and God were talking about, right? Moses said, God, show me your glory. This is the moment that God said, okay, I'm going to put you inside the rock. This is the moment where God is now hiding Moses, walking in front of him, but shielding him. This is the moment where the real substance of God, pure and perfect character, is passing in front of Moses. And this is the moment that that even though Moses can't witness God's glory... By the things that God proclaims as he passes by, he begins to understand exactly who God is. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, in steadfast love and faithfulness. So, while Moses is not right now seeing God's glory with his eyes, as God covers his face, God is explaining to Moses the content of his glory, what is inside his glory. He says, steadfast love and faithfulness. You can think of this as synonymous with grace and truth. At the outset of the last covenant in Exodus 20, uh, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up at the, the, out of the land of Egypt. But at the, the beginning of this rewrite, what does he say? He says, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He says, Moses, you know what? This is a stiff-necked and corrupt people. You and I both know that, but let me tell you who I am. So he goes on in verse 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He's saying, Moses, you can't see my glory, but let me tell you about it as I pass by. I am full of two things, perfect mercy and perfect justice, perfect grace and perfect truth. And so in this, he creates a new covenant with Israel. He restarts with them. And this action of creating a new covenant is an action that is previously unheard of from any ruler to his people. But God does it almost instantly to show his people what he is made of. That he is ready to forgive. That he is ready to show love. And that he still must deal with sin. 
So in this moment, as God is explaining these things, as he's passing in front of Moses, and uh, Moses can't really see, but he only sees the faint effects, the results, right? So, so Moses says, or God says who he is to Moses, and then Moses is able to look after God removes his hand, and he sees the faint trail of his glory, but doesn't actually see it. So watch how Moses responds in Exodus 34, 8. It says, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth in worship. Now, you probably think he's like, okay, it's time for me to get on my knees and bow my head, and that's the thing I'm supposed to do. No, Moses falls flat on his face. When he comprehends in his head who it is that God is, that God is not just this mighty, powerful warrior who has saved them out of Egypt, that God is not just this guy who has justice in his hand, but that God is merciful and gracious, and abounding in steadfast love, as soon as he understands it, he falls on his face. And what's interesting is that still, even now, even at this moment of moments in Scripture, there still is a degree of separation between God and his people. Right? From this point on, God is going to go on to re-articulate the law to Moses. And he's going to put that law on stone tablets. And now Moses is going to come down from the mountain and bring that law back to the people and tell them, look at what God has done. He's re-established the covenant. He is abounding in steadfast love. So Exodus 34, 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, As he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near. Remember that bit about separation goes two ways? That there's something inside of us that is repulsed by the glory of God. That's what we see happening with the people of Israel right now. They were afraid. They couldn't draw near. And it's ironic because that's the thing that they were made for. Like they were made to add to and delight in God's glory, but they look at it and they're afraid of it. So he calls the elders and Moses calls the elders up and and the leaders up to explain everything. And then they're going to proceed down to the people. And so Exodus 34, 33 says this. It says, when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Quite literally, he put a bag on his head to cover up what was, it was so powerful. What was shining forth was so powerful that Moses' only way of existing with the people is if he put a bag over his head. So remember, God's glory and our purpose are intrinsically connected. And we were made to add to and delight in the glory of God. But Moses, even Moses still had to be separated from God's glory. And the people, they can't even stand to be around Moses with his head uncovered. After even like these just small effects of God's glory are shining onto them. So on one hand, like this is a story of really, really good news. Right? Because it shows us a God who is willing to reestablish after things have been broken. But on the other hand, this is not very much good news. Because there still is this degree of separation. Because even with God's graciousness in this moment, there still remains a veil. 
Church, without God's help, we we remain separated from our purpose. Okay, now for the really good news. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles with you, I would really encourage you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You know what's fun about the Bible is sometimes if you don't know what something in the Bible means, the Bible will tell you what that thing means. And 2 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us exactly what we as Christians on this side of the cross are to make of this moment in the book of Exodus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is talking to people and what he's saying is the law. The Ten Commandments carved on letters of stone was a ministry of death. And if it came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory which was being brought to an end. He's saying, listen, this glory, it was amazing. And the Israelites were awestruck. They had to put a veil over his face. And uh, even that glory was a glory that faded away. He's saying all of that came from this thing called the ministry of death, right? The law. He's saying the law, the law did one thing. The law showed that people fall short of the law. The law showed that people could not keep the law. The law showed that throughout the ages, God's people could never, ever be connected, truly connected to God's glory. It was inachievable. And even that law was something brilliant. But it was temporary and fading. So 2 Corinthians 3 verse 8. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So... We talked about the ministry of death. What is the ministry of the Spirit? The ministry of the Spirit is to illuminate hearts to the reality of Jesus, God in the flesh. The Spirit opens the eyes of the heart. This is where we get, I once was blind, but now I see, right? The Spirit opens our eyes to who Jesus is. The Spirit shows us who Jesus is. That Jesus is the real substance of God's pure and perfect character. John 1, 14. The word that is Jesus existing before creation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his what? Glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The apostle John He's looking all the way back to Exodus 34 and he's saying the fullness of who God is, of his pure and perfect character is found in Jesus. And what does Jesus, this God in the flesh, do? 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. Verse 12 says this, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Again, this hope is that we have the ministry that is of even more glory than what Moses had, right? Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Verse 13, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of the thing that was fading away. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil 
remains unlifted. Right? That veil of law keeping, that veil of performance, that veil of do this. This is what it means to be a faithful follower of God. Do this and this and this and you will show yourself to be correct and right. And that pattern, there's still a veil there. Because only through Christ is it taken away. So verse 15 says, yes. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. The Apostle Paul is talking about all the Jews who gather together in synagogues and they read the law of Moses again and again and again. And they uh, try to make themselves perfect through their own performance. And what they don't understand is that the law of Moses only clarified the problem. And the problem is that we're not connected to our purpose. The problem is that we, are, are, we cannot draw near to God. The problem is that we are actually repulsed by God. The problem is, is if we drew near to God, his glory would consume us. Right? The law shows that we fall short of God's glory. That it can't accomplish anything. That it actually fails. So your religious performance fails. Your attempt to impress God fails. Your self-righteousness and self-justification fails. Your trying to be a good person fails. Everything fails time and time and time again. And we remain disconnected from that thing for which we were made. So Exodus 34 is not really good news for us because it brings no resolution to the problem. But church, there is good news. 2 Corinthians 3.16 But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Like when you see who Jesus is, when you see what he has accomplished for you in his death and resurrection, that he could make you clean, that you could be fully forgiven, that your debt could be paid in full. When the Spirit says, trust in Jesus and follow Jesus and opens your eyes to who Jesus is, you see something that not even Moses could see. You see the full, real substance of God's pure and perfect character in Jesus. You hear that he loves you, that he would die for you, that he would give you a promise of new life, that he would give you a hope of life beyond death, that he would freely give you forgiveness, that he would give you the Holy Spirit to empower you and to guide you, that he would surround you with the people of God to uphold you in prayer, that he would open full access to his presence, that he would change and heal that which is most broken in you. And when you see this, when your eyes are open to Jesus, you realize that your purpose is twofold. Number one, your purpose is to add to Jesus' fame. Right? In your words and actions to shine a light of his glory for others to see. In your words and actions to speak of the things that he's done for you. In your words and actions to pray for the broken world around you. In your words and actions to steward God's resources in a way that promotes Jesus. To tell your kids about the goodness of who Jesus is. To invite your neighbors to hear about the good things that Jesus has done for you. To serve the weak and wounded because he served you. To use his gifts to impact your spheres of influence. Right? And every time you take a step in that direction, you know what it does? It adds to the glory of God. So it's interesting. In, uh, in the Bible, sometimes it talks about the things that are going to happen off in the future. Uh, and it talks about how the earth will be full of the glory of the Lord. And one of the pictures that it gives 
is it gives this picture of everything that is false in the world being burned away, and only those things which added to God's glory are what remains. And so when you add to Jesus' fame, you add to the glory of God that is going to be revealed at the end of creation. So that's the first part of your purpose. Second part of your purpose is this. To delight in Jesus. Right? To take the weariness of law-keeping and performance, uh, to, to, to take that, to let him take that off of you, and to find rest in him. To know that you are loved by the most powerful creator of the universe. To walk more closely and deeply with the one who calls you his treasured possession. To see more clearly than every hero of the Old Testament exactly who God is. To know that God delights in you as he sees you in Jesus. To know that God hears the deepest cries of your heart. To know that Jesus sits with you in the middle of grief and knows it as deeply as you know it. To know that Jesus suffered deeply for you. To see that he gives you the gift of the Spirit. To receive his words in Scripture and let them settle in your heart and take whatever is unsettling out of you so that you can rest in what he's done for you. So you have a twofold purpose. To add to Jesus' fame and to delight in Jesus. So 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with un veiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another so we see him God lifts the veil and he draws us deeper and deeper and deeper into his glory and our purpose we delight in him And he draws us deeper and deeper and deeper into his glory and our purpose. So church, your purpose is in Jesus. Add to his fame and delight in him. So what? I have one question this morning. And that question is this. How big of a deal is God's glory to you. I feel like sometimes we can become ambivalent, become complacent, become apathetic to the things that he's done. And even that word, as we see it in scripture, it can kind of just roll off of our minds like it's not that big of a deal. But here's the thing. If you've seen Jesus for who he actually is, if you've seen him for what he has accomplished for you, Gosh, then like you can't help but do or seek to do everything that you can to make his name known. To find your deepest delight in him. When things about Jesus are spoken, that it would speak truth to your heart that would settle your soul. All right, so this morning, if you have not seen Jesus with clarity, If you have not allowed Jesus to draw you in, if you have not allowed him to let the glory of God become the deepest purpose for which you live, I can let you know right now that that does not have to continue to remain the truth. Right right now, 
My prayer is that the Spirit would illuminate your heart to see Jesus for who he is, that he is the fullness of grace and truth, God's pure and perfect character, the creator of the universe from before time created this world. And yes, we rebelled against him, but he sent Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, that he might come, make himself known, and die, and then be raised from the dead so that we can actually see who God is so that we can be connected to the very thing for which we were made. So if you've never trusted in Jesus, if you don't know where you stand here, I want to invite you, place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ alone today and you can do that with me now. I'd invite you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, I recognize that you have created all things. And that in the deepest parts of my soul, I have not wanted what you wanted. I have gone against your intentions for me. I have sinned. And yet you invite me back into that purpose that you created me for. You invite me to add to and delight in your pure and perfect character. And you give me the promise that one day it will be the celebration of the fullness of creation and the celebration of my heart. So Lord Jesus, right now, here in this moment, I place my faith and trust in you. And Lord Jesus, for the rest of us, I pray that you would not allow us to settle for anything less than glory in our lives. To settle for living for anything less than adding to your fame. To settle for anything less than delighting in you. That you would well up our hearts to find our deepest purpose in you. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today and you are here with us physically, would you please find me after service and talk to me about that? If you are online and you prayed that prayer, there's a button underneath this video that says next steps. Fill out that button and I promise I will reach out to you today to follow up with you on that. So with all of that being said, church, I'd invite you to stand with us as we close in a song of worship.